Well, hey, good morning. If you're new with us, this is our fifth Sunday in a series that we're doing on the book of Jonah that's guiding us through the Lenten season. Um, if you're new, then you, you probably haven't heard that that piece was done. The Jonah piece is actually done by a tattoo artist who works down at Solid Grounds, and Aaron met him when he was drawing down there, and Aaron asked him if he would do a piece for us for Jonah, and that's what he came up with. Pretty cool, huh? Um, Aaron also agreed to get a tattoo of this on his back, and so <laughs> it's just next level dedication our staff has. I, I am always impressed. Hey, if you have your Bible, open to Jonah chapter 4. I'll give you a few moments to find it. Jonah's a short little book in the minor prophets. He's minor, not because he's unimportant, but because he's short. Yeah, the book is short. It's, it's significant, but it's only four chapters and it. It packs a punch. So as you're finding that, let me share with you a little nugget from the Paulson household. My, uh, my kids, most weekends, will ask to all spend the night in a room together and to do a sleepover on the weekends. And most of the time, Kelly and I say no because we want to remain sane. Um, but there are moments of weakness, and we'll let them all sleep in the same room together, and they'll be chit-chatting up there. And a, a few times, we'll walk by the door and just sort of, and just sort of listen. And we can hear them in there, and they're playing this game, I have an animal in my mind. And so the game is that one of them thinks of an animal and the other two ask yes or no questions and they try to guess what the animal is. And I thought, in light of what we're going to be talking about this morning, that it would be fun to play that game together. So, um, I have an animal in my mind and I would like you to ask yes or no questions <laughs> to try to identify said animal. So... Questions, yes or no questions? Come on, give them. What? Will it fit in a bread box? I could fit it in a bread box, yes. What else? Does it have a tail? It does have a tail. Does it say meow? It does say meow, especially when you. Okay, I'm just kidding. Just, just kidding. It says ow, then, not meow. Any guesses? Yeah, it is, it is a cat. And we had a little fun with that um, during uh, April Fool's this week. And one of my friends, Forrest, who's the artist who did the pieces for the Stations of the Cross, <laughs> posted this picture of me. And so I think he's trying to win me over to the side of cats. And, and that's the kind of cat I can get behind right there. I, I like that cat. An animal in my mind. Uh, Here's the deal. Lean in for a moment. Lean in. Look up. Um, you have a God in your mind. You have a God in your mind. You, you have a picture of what you think God is like. For, for some of you, it's a sort of bearded, large bearded, grandfatherly type man, right? Very kind and welcoming and soft-spoken. For others of you, it may be he still has that beard, but he's a little bit angrier. Um, he's the get-off-my-lawn God, the Gran Torino God, right? A little bit on edge. For some of you, it, it's just a, a big question mark. You're going, I, I don't know. I don't know what that God is like. I, I don't know. For some of you, it's, I, I don't think that God exists. And by the way, that's, that's a view of God. That's an image of God. And so 
wherever you're at in your journey, in your spiritual journey, I just want you to know that you are welcome here. And if your view of God is a big question mark, you're welcome here. If your view of God is a blank slate and I don't know, or I don't even think he exists, but this is what we do, we come to church, I am so glad that you are here and I'm so glad that you're here today. Because you're going to get to see sort of the behind the scenes that even people in the scriptures struggle with their view of God. They struggle with this question, what is God like? A.W. Tozer famously wrote in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So that picture you had, that view you have of what God is like is the most important thing about you. He goes on to argue because it drives everything we do. It drives the way we treat people in relationships. It it drives the way that we live in the world. The view of God that you have is the most important thing about you. So the question isn't whether or not you have a picture of God in your mind. The question is, is that picture accurate? Turn to the person next to you and say, I've got a picture of God in my mind. Okay? Tell him. Tell him. I've got a picture of God in my mind. Turn to the person on the other side you don't like as much and say, you have a picture of God in your mind. You've got a picture of God in your mind. You do. And Jonah, Jonah has a picture of God in his mind as well. Remember, when we started this journey five weeks ago, Jonah chapter one, Jonah's a prophet of God. He prophesies in roughly the eighth, eighth century. There are other prophets in, that, in Israel at that time as well. Hosea was one of them, and Amos was one of them. And those prophets, Hosea and Amos, were very critical about the way that Israel, and specifically the king, Jeroboam II, was using his militaristic might and power to expand the empire. And they had unkind things to say about his reign and about his use of power. Jonah, however, did not. Jonah thought... As long as Israel flourishes, it's good. Use whatever means necessary to get the job done. And so the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. The the wickedness of Nineveh has risen up to me, God said. And I, I want you to go, Jonah, to Nineveh to preach against it. Nineveh, this place of pain, this place of bloodshed. And Jonah says... Thanks, but no thanks. No. And he hops on a boat and he heads to Tarshish, a tropical paradise. So instead of going and journeying into the pain, Jonah runs toward pleasure. Don't you wish the book of Jonah applied to us today? So the author of Jonah is sort of stringing the the reader along. Remember, Jonah is brilliant Hebrew literature. And if you were to read through it, just start to finish, one of the things you'd recognize is there's this haunting question through chapters one through three, why in the world is Jonah running? Hey, what's his deal? He's a prophet of God, and yet he feels compelled to run from God. Why is the big question all throughout the pages of Jonah? Until you get to chapter four. The curtain's pulled back a little bit, and we get to see why Jonah is on the run. Jonah chapter 4. You there? Good. But it displeased Jonah 
exceedingly. Or you could read it, the Hebrew could be translated, in Jonah's mind, it was exceedingly evil. And he was angry. Well, what was, what was evil? What was Jonah angry about? You have to go back to chapter 3 to, to find out. Jonah's angry because God offered mercy, not judgment, to the Ninevites. And it ticked Jonah off. Listen to what he says. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? God, didn't I tell you I thought this was, my, it was the way it might play out? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is the first time in this whole book that Jonah and God have a direct conversation. It's the first time they sort of sit down and they start to talk. And what do we find? Jonah had a picture of God in his mind, just like you do. And he was absolutely destroyed to find out that his picture of God was right. He says, I knew it. I, I knew it. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were merciful. I knew that you were slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I knew it. And that's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. I had this sneaking suspicion that this is the way this was going to turn out. I tried to save us from this predicament, God. You wouldn't let me save us. And now look at the position we're in. You've got to show grace to them. See, Jonah's view of God is being shaken because it's being refined. God, Jonah is seeing the real God, and the real God is disappointing to Jonah. And Jonah isn't the first person in the scriptures to have wrestled with this. I mean, you read through the book of uh, the Torah, and you see Moses' interaction with God, and he'll say things like, if this is the way that you intend to treat me, kill me now. Or you can read through Job, and in Job chapter 7, Job looks at God and says, do I have a target on my back? Uh, what's the deal? What's the deal? David will write in Psalm chapter 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Are you going to be silent forever? Yeah. And they're all in this spot, Jonah and Moses and David and Job, of going, this isn't the picture that I wanted to have, or this isn't the picture that I had. And now I'm left with this. This is the way that the world actually worked out. This is the way things start, happened. And now I'm left to wrestle with what do I view, do with that fractured view of God? See, because the truth of the matter is, friends, the disappointment in God doesn't reveal a failure of God. It reveals a faulty view of God. What's crumbling around Jonah is not Jonah's faith in God. 
what's crumbling around Jonah is Jonah's view of God. It's his picture of what he hoped God were actually like, and it's crumbling beneath him, and it's falling apart, and he's an Israelite prophet, and he's going, I'm not sure I like the picture of what's actually true. and I don't know what to do with that. And my guess is at some point in your life, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you've had a picture of God that you found out maybe wasn't quite as realistic or quite as true or quite as accurate as you hoped it was. I have some friends right now that are reading through the scriptures, doing a one-year read through the Bible, and they just made it through Joshua, And there's this like cognitive dissonance going on. Like, God, I I didn't really realize that this is what you were like. You seem different. You seem different. And, And hey, it's the Bible that's shaking their view of God. Some of you, maybe, maybe you went to the museum or maybe you picked up a science book and you started to read. And you went. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that view and of, of what might be true or what might be real and the view that I have from the scriptures, I'm not sure what to do with that. I'm not sure how those fit together. And it just sort of launched you into this season of going, God, that view, that picture that I had of you in my mind, um, maybe there's some parts of it that I need to let go of. What do I do with that? Or maybe some of you, maybe some of you, it's just been life. Like you were told, hey, if you're a Christian in college and you date and you're pure in your relationship and, and you do everything right, you're promised your marriage is going to be, be pure bliss from day one. So if you think that, just listen to the chuckles, okay? So maybe, <laughs> maybe it didn't work out that way for some people. Maybe it did, but, but maybe, maybe God doesn't promise that. Or or maybe your view was, hey, God, if we're faithful, you will be faithful to heal. You'll be faithful to restore. You'll be faithful to to make this all right. Or God, if we run our business in a way that honors you, you will bless it financially and you'll make everything turn out right. (laughs) Or maybe your view of God was, hey, you're the type of God that, that will always tell me exactly what to do every single time. And then sometimes God seems silent. And what do you do then? Or maybe, maybe, maybe you had this view in your mind of God, that he would protect you from hardship, that he'd protect you from pain, that he'd protect you from suffering, that he'd protect you from abuse. And he didn't. And you were left holding the pieces. Saying, God, I don't know what to do with you now. Because I thought for sure you were the kind of God that showed up in situations like that. See, the reality is that The fact that evil and suffering and abuse exists in the world, that does not mean that God doesn't exist. What it means 
is that there is no God who always prevents suffering and evil and abuse. That's what it means. That God doesn't exist. But it doesn't mean that no God exists, right? It means that we have to go back and we have to start to wrestle with, with what in the world do we do with, well, reality? What, what do we do with life? Because the spiritual life is distinctly grounded in reality, not fantasy, it's about taking God as he is or not taking God at all. And sometimes what's false and untrue has to die a really, really painful, really difficult death in order for what's true to actually start to emerge. And so to hold on to what's true of God, what's untrue of God has to die. And when it does, that is painful, isn't it? If you've ever walked through a season where God isn't who you hoped he was or he turned out to be different than you thought, you know letting go of that view hurts. It hurts. And there's a word for that that's thrown around a lot now. It's called deconstruction. And I'm not passionate about deconstruction, to be honest with you. What I'm actually more passionate about is reconstruction. I think that's where the good stuff is. Like, we can let go of some things, and we might need to, but what can we hold on to? Because we're all left in this spot when God is disappointing, or we feel like God's failed us, or we know we have to reimagine what God is like, we're all left with these three choices. Will I continue to hold on to what I thought was true and what I hoped was true, even though I know in the back of my mind it's not now? Will I walk away altogether? And just say, God, if you're not like that, if you don't always heal, if you don't always bless, if you don't always do this, then I'm out completely. And I, I know so many people who have walked away from their faith because they feel like God failed them. But what I want to say to you is it's not God failing you. It's your view of God that's faulty that's being revealed. Or, or, will I incorporate what I now know of God into my view of him. Will I let the false God die so that I can embrace what's actually true? This is where Jonah's at. This is Jonah's journey in chapter four, and he's gonna be our prophetic guide on our journey as well. So here we go, Jonah chapter four. We wanna wrestle with this question. What do we do when it seems like God is disappointing and how do we start to move forward? Jonah chapter four, verse two, here's what Jonah said. You probably caught it. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, file that, file that away for a few moments. We'll circle back to it. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to go to Tarshish, for I knew you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. What's Jonah doing? Jonah's quoting scripture. Jonah is taking what he's heard about God 
read about God, studied about God as a Hebrew prophet, and he's parroting back to God, God, I had this sneaking suspicion this was true because I'd read it somewhere. Where had I read it? There's, it's in there somewhere. Oh, right. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 says the exact same thing. And it's one of the most important scriptures in the entire Bible. It's the place where God reveals God's self, where God says, this is what I'm like. You can count on it. Right? So the Israelites had just been led out of slavery in Egypt. They'd been there for 400 years. They go into the wilderness. Moses has this encounter with God, and Moses asks him, show me your face. Show me what you're like. And God says, I'll tell you my name. Wait, what? Face? Name? What, what, what's going on here, Moses? What's, what's the deal, God? Why? Have you ever thought about this? Why does God need a name? Like, isn't God good enough? Well, not if you're coming out of Israel, or not if you're coming out of Egypt, and you've been surrounded by a number of pagan deities. If you were to go back to Pharaoh and say, God sent me, Pharaoh would probably respond by saying, which God? Which God? So this is the place where God, capital G, God, sets himself apart from every other God and says, this is what I'm like. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Do you know that when you read that word Lord in your translation of the Bible, usually when the translators are translating the name Yahweh, they capitalize Lord, all four letters. Do you know that? So when you read Lord and it's in all caps, it's Yahweh. It's a name. And so what God says is Yahweh, Yahweh, an El or an Elohim that's different, that's set apart, that's completely other from the other lowercase g gods. And what God does in giving Moses a name is he makes himself personal. And he says, listen, I'm not that interested in you just calling me God as a title. I actually want relationship with you. I have a name. Call me Yahweh. I mean, think about it. It would be strange. It would be strange if I called my wife, wife, wouldn't it? Hey, wife, how you doing today? Wife, how are the kiddos? Wife, how was work? No, no, no. We have a relationship. Therefore, I call her Kelly or babe. Or if we've been watching a lot of Seinfeld, I call her Smoopy. You know, I mean, don't judge me. Don't judge, right? Yeah, because it's, it's personal. And Yahweh's distinguishing himself from the other gods. He's making himself personal. And look at these words, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I mean, he's making himself ridiculously good. It's as though God wants to say to Moses and then all these other authors, 32 times this passage of scripture is quoted throughout the Bible. It's the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. And you know who it sounds a lot like? Jesus. Jesus. But Jonah can't see it. He can't see it because of his own hypocrisy. 
He can't see it because he doesn't recognize that that's the kind of God he needs. He needs God to be gracious and merciful. Because if God were vindictive and angry, my guess is a disobedient prophet might be at the front of the line to receive his wrath. But Jonah can't get there. Jonah's struggling with this view of God because this type of God, Jonah can't control. And Jonah can't say to that God, here's my agenda. If you could execute on it, that would be wonderful. And, and remember, remember how we hate them. Remember how they're wrong. And remember how you're on, on our side only and not theirs. Remember that? He can't say that to that God. See, Jonah wishes that God were way more like him. As Voltaire famously quipped, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. <laughs> Certainly, Jonah falls in line with that. But, but I think Jonah also has a valid concern. How is God supposed to be good to the promises he's made to Israel and merciful to Nineveh? just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. It's the same thing that people struggled with in regards to Jesus. Jesus, how can you be the Messiah? And how can you bring the kingdom of God like you say you're bringing if the empire of Rome continues to flourish? How can both be true? And what the author of Jonah is leading the reader to see is something that maybe Jonah can't see, but we can, is that in order for Jonah to move forward in his spiritual journey, in order for Jonah to continue to walk with God in any sort of way, he cannot walk around those questions. He cannot ignore them. He cannot pick up the rug and sweep them under the rug and hope that they go away. In order for Jonah to continue to move forward, he has to hit those questions head on. And what Jonah prophetically shows us is that honest doubt is oftentimes the gateway to deeper faith. Honest doubt is oftentimes the, the gateway to deeper faith. What Jonah's discovering is that there's a difference. There's a difference between what he thinks he knows to be true of God and what he actually trusts of God. Let that sink in for a moment. What he knows or thinks he knows to be true of God and what he actually trusts of God. We've been on this journey. You know this uh, if you're uh, one of our, our members or attenders. We've been on this journey over the last few years of, of just re-engaging spiritual practices. And one of the reasons we are so passionate about that is that we believe that you could learn the entire Bible, that you could memorize the entire Bible and, and not encounter Jesus. And that 12-inch journey from our head, what we know, to our heart, what we believe, is way longer than 12 inches, isn't it? And I can tell you about the love of God. I can preach about the love of God. I can show it to you in the scriptures and go, come on, you guys, it's true. But it only actually changes your life when you hear it, not from me, but when you hear it from God. 
So you could walk out of here hearing it from me and leave unchanged. Oh, but friend, if you hear the voice of God whisper the goodness and mercy and love, I've been following you all the days of your life and you'll dwell in my house forever. If you hear him say that, that is a game changer. It's a game changer. Dallas Willard once said, the way that we often teach theological truth is we say, you should believe this whether you believe it or not. And I think Jonah's going, I know I should believe this, but I don't. But I don't. What if a more beautiful faith awaits on the other side of your doubt and disappointment with God? What if wrestling with disappointment is actually the place that we meet Jesus most sincerely? What if we've been rejecting the very thing that ushers us into presence? See, I, I think, I think a faith that engages doubt, disappointment, pain, and hurt is the only kind of faith worth having. Because it's real. It's alive. Jonah's on this journey. Here's what he says. He says it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was what? <laughs> Angry. Therefore now, the Lord, oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And he's not going, Pauline, to live as Christ, to die as gain on us. He's going, I'm so upset that this is who you are and this is what you're like. I would rather die and try to get away from your presence than continue to live with this view and this picture of God in my mind. I think if we had more text, I think Jonah would say, you played me. I think Jonah would say, you let me down. I was thinking destruction. You were thinking grace. I was thinking justice. You were thinking mercy. And here's what God says to him. And Yahweh said, do you do well to be angry? I mean, so gentle, so loving, so Dr. Phil. Like, <laughs> how's that working out for you, Jonah? So you're angry, you're upset. Jonah, how's that going? Um, another translation or another way you could translate those words is, is, Jonah, are you justified in your anger? But notice, notice that Yahweh doesn't come alongside of Jonah and say, how dare you be angry with me? You're a prophet of God. If you can't get it, who can? Get away from me, out of my presence. If you won't take me as I actually am, you're out of here. It's not what he does. You see God putting his arm around Jonah. He is not, look up at me, friend, look up at me. God is not threatened and he's not offended by Jonah's disappointment. He's not offended by Jonah's honesty. And he's not offended or threatened by yours. And he actually wants to help him walk through it. 
hey, Jonah, let's talk. Let's talk about your anger. Jonah, your anger is preventing you from seeing my grace in your life. Jonah, your anger is, as Paul will write later on to the church in Philippi, your anger is creating a space in your soul that's giving the devil a foothold. It's creating a fire of evil in your life that you will never grow beyond, Jonah. So Jonah, let's talk about the anger. Let's not sweep it under the rug. Let's get it out in the open, which isn't this one of the most fascinating verses. You give the devil a foothold. So if you want to do spiritual warfare, fight and war against the anger that takes root in your soul. Forgive people often. That's spiritual warfare. But what Jonah, what God is saying to Jonah is, Jonah, you can't move forward. God knows that unexamined anger will continue to be a roadblock in Jonah's spiritual development because you never grow beyond your anger. And see, here's what God knows that Jonah doesn't yet. Is that anger has this ability to absolutely, this power to destroy. But it also, it also has a unique ability to be a mirror. See, because examined anger is a diagnostic for self-discovery. It's where God wants to lead Jonah. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? You may want to write this down. You may want to write this down. Anger is a terrible end, but it's a decent guide. It's a terrible end, but it's a decent guide because it can shine a light on some things going on in our soul that maybe we wouldn't see any other way. So you may go, oh, I know I shouldn't be angry, but what should I do when I'm angry? <laughs> Which is a great question. Here's, here's three things that you could do. Number one, identify anger in your body. I can remember the very first time I was sharing with my spiritual director, I, I said, man, I just, this thing this week just got under my skin. And he responded by saying, yeah, where'd you, where'd you feel that in your body? And I went, feel it in my body. I felt it in my head because I knew they were wrong. And I was right. I'm talking about my body. And then I, I stepped back for a moment and went, well, no, actually, I felt it in my chest. My heart started to beat quicker. Neck probably got splotchy. See, because here's the truth of the matter. If you can identify anger where anger typically resides in your body, you can address it before you explode and go, oh, I'm angry. I'm angry. So you can examine it. But here's the next thing you do. You follow your anger to its root. Figure out what's really there. Uh, yesterday, uh, I was walking into our backyard, and we have a sliding glass door, and then we have a screen door, and um, I have done battle with the screen doors in my house. I hate the screen doors in my house. Three kids, and we used to have a dog, and so the screen doors were always getting bent, and they never slid the right way, and it drove me bonkers. It also drove me to go to Home Depot and to buy not one, but two screen doors that I tried to replace said broken screen door with, and I came up oh for two. Hundreds of dollars thrown down the drain over screen doors. So when we got new windows on our house and it came with a sliding glass door and a new screen door, I felt like I'd been introduced to Jesus all over again. <laughs> Until yesterday. 
first time, spring day, it's open, wind blowing through, it's beautiful. I go to go out into the backyard and I pull the screen door and it goes nowhere. Broken again. And I lost it. And I'm like, boom, like close the screen door, open it again, boom, boom, boom. And I turned to my son, Ethan, who I was going to go play catch with. And I said, I think I'm losing it. (laughs) And I had this voice in the back of my head, do you do well to be angry? (laughs) And my answer was, well, yeah, I do. Because this freaking screen door won't work right, right? And so I was, able, I was able to take a step back and I thought, what's going on? What, why, Paulson, why are you freaking out over a screen door? And, and here's what I came up with. I'm freaking out over a screen door because it's broken and I hoped it would be fixed. And God says, okay, a little bit deeper. And I'm, I, I'm freaking out because, because I couldn't fix it the last time. And I felt like a failure. Okay, and God said, "Mm mm-hmm, a little bit deeper. I said, Lord, I guess I'm freaking out because I base a lot of my self-worth and identity on being competent. And I wasn't. And in so many ways, I'm not. And I just sense God go, yeah, yeah, that's it. And what if you just, what if you started to drop that mask of having it all together? What if, what if you didn't need that fig leaf of competence to feel okay? And I said, well, I can drop that if you get me a new screen door. No, friends, our surrender is a part of our worship. It's a part of our worship. To bring the false self, to bring the fig leaf self to Jesus and to say, here's, here's what I think it is. It's a part of our worship. What if we surrendered our anger to Jesus and said, okay, now, now it's yours. You, you teach me. I love this picture of God that Jonah just latches onto. You're abounding in love. You're gracious. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. Is Jonah right? He is. He, Jonah, Jonah nails it. And okay, so look up at me for a moment. You were created in the image of this God. You carry his image in your soul. If you want to walk in the way that God has created you and designed you to walk, you walk in this. You walk in love. You walk in forgiveness. You walk in mercy. You walk knowing that God is ridiculously good to you. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he starts to address this faulty view of God. And here's what he says. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which was part of their tradition. It wasn't actually in the Bible. They couldn't point to a scripture and say, see, God said, hate your enemy. You could find a place where he said um, to love God and love people, but they had sort of added on to that people that are good to you. (laughs) And Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why, Jesus? Why should we do that? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. When you 
Love your enemies and pray for people who persecute you. You know who you look like? God. You're a chip off the old block. You're sons of your father who's in heaven. For he, and then Jesus gives an illustration, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Have you ever noticed that the sun comes up on your neighbor who's a terrible person and on your neighbor who's a great person? Have you noticed that when it rains, it hits your neighbor's yard that was a jerk to you and you who you think is a pretty good, nice person? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that God is ridiculously, abundantly good all around? Jesus says, yeah, yeah, walk in that. Walk in that way. Because maybe the thing that Jonah misses and maybe the thing that a lot of people missed was that the way of love is actually the pathway to freedom. But it's not easy, is it? It's way easier to live in the way of revenge. It's way easier to cling on to, I I want justice in every situation, and I want to see it happen, and I want to determine what it looks like. But you were created in the image of God, and that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting of disaster. That's what's true of God. It may be disappointing to you. I hope it's not. It's what's true of God. And it's what's revealed in Jesus. So here's the invitation this morning. What if, what if we took all of the ways that we felt like God disappointed us or all the doubts that we had or all the things that we wished were a little bit different? What if we took those and instead of just sweeping them away, we brought them to God? Because God doesn't call Jonah to process his pain apart from him. Jonah prays. Jonah prays. He invites God into it. And what if we use the way that Our anger starts to flare up as a mirror to grow deeper into recognizing who we are and ultimately who God's made us to be. And what if we said, man, in the midst of all the things that we don't know and all the questions that are left outstanding, what if we said we've got this anchor and it holds us and it keeps us and it's the thing we continually go back to when the waves start to rise and the wind starts to blow and we just run back to this reality that changes everything. We're loved. Children of the most high God. And we may not know everything, but you can know enough. So here's what I want to do. I just want to end and create some space. We're going to come to the table this morning. And I'll invite our servers to come and to start getting in place. And as they do, I just, I want to ask you, what what do you sense Jesus saying to you? What do you sense Jesus saying to you? What's his invitation? Can I share with you what I sensed him saying to me? Here's what I sensed him saying to me. Have space for people who are questioning. I can't tell you how much I long for us to be the kind of community of faith where we can be okay with welcoming people who say, I'm a little bit mad at God. And I'm not exactly sure what to do with that. 
or that say in honesty, I, I, can't, I, I can't reconcile the fact that, that God didn't come through for me in this situation? What if, we, what if we were a safe space for people, not where we just gave all the answers, but where we met people with presence? What if we were honest about our own journey and our own questions, and we didn't distance God from that conversation, but included him? And what if, what if we said, man, Jesus is our North Star, and we're going to pursue him with everything we have. We have confidence that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that Jesus is what God is like. He's the exact representation of the glory of God. May he be our pursuit. May he be our longing. May he be the thing that we have in our mind when we think about what God is like. And as you come to this table this morning, broken body, shed blood. Maybe, just maybe, you say, yeah, this is, this is what you're like, God. That you meet us in these elements, that you speak a good word over us. Your loving, good sacrifice for us and your arms around us. As you come to the table this morning, Get in your mind, this is what God is like. So here's the logistics. You can exit to your left, get into the aisle. You'll come down. There will be somebody here to serve you. You can grab a piece of bread. That it's gluten-free. It's all gluten-free bread. You can grab a little cup that has some juice in it and then go back and enter your row the other way. Uh, that'll help us have some semblance of order as we uh, try to get everybody through and served. Will you hold on to that cup so we can celebrate that together and you can take the bread as you so feel led. We'll sort of move front to back. So let's pray and I'll invite you to come forward. So Jesus, this morning, we wanna say to you that we love you, that we know that you see us and that you love us there's pieces of the way that we think about you that are wrong, would you point them out to us and would you help us let go of them that we might move forward in a way of freedom, in a way of truth, in a way of life? Jesus, I pray that you would meet us as we take these elements this morning. Would you speak a good word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may come forward as you so feel that.